Okay, here we are for another version of the Wacky World of Diabetes podcast. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm really excited today. I got, I got three giants, three giants who know everything there is to know about diabetes. I have Dr. Satish Garge. I have Dr. Stephen Edelman. I have Dr. Earl Hirsch. And if you don't know who these people are, you have no business being in diabetes. So I'm not going to go into a long, lengthy explanation about why they're so great. You can look it up on Google, Twitter, and all that other crap. So we're going to have at it right from the beginning. And I'm going to ask each of you individually, because you've been around the block a few times, tell me what you've seen over the last five years that really excites you. And then switch the question around and say, okay, if you look ahead five years from today, what really gets you going and makes you very optimistic. So let's have at it, boys. So in the last five years, my friend, thank you for the introduction, David. And it's nice to be with David, with Earl, as well as Steve Edelman. Haven't seen these guys for some time. It's not only in the last five years, last 10 years, I think the evolution of use of continuous glucose monitors has really evolved that it is being more widely accepted by the patients. To some extent, that might be because sensors have come a long way. They are not the same when I did the first study on GlucoWatch or implantable sensor with Dexcom, where the MARD used to be 36%. Now we are talking about single digits, uh, less than 10 being the MARD in most of them. So in, in all fairness, part of it is the companies have improved the products and patients have started to accept. In fact, if I see somebody using a meter, I throw their meter in the trash can and give them a new sensor from the clinic that that's all they're gonna do. And there is not a single patient, even after 40 years of diabetes who say, this has changed my life. So I think going forward, David, in the next five to 10 years, I see elimination of BGM and uptake of the CGM. That's my number one goal. Well, I can jump in there. Oh, you go ahead. You're about to say something. Well, you know, I mean, Satish is right. I mean, CGM has just been the game changer, revolutionary product that Al Mann, I remember hearing Al Mann at a meeting in Hawaii. He predicted this would happen in 1999. Al Mann was right. And I don't think enough people give him credit for what has happened. In our clinic and our type one population, we're way over 90% now penetrated in the type one. And in the type twos on insulin, we're over 50%. These numbers are only going to get higher. But Steve, you and Satish and I work in very different worlds than the rest of the country. And we have to keep that in mind, that the penetration and what we see and our patient populations and their interest in managing their diabetes is very different. CGM has been the game player, but I really do think in the type one space, improvements of the automated insulin delivery systems are going to completely overtake and people who have been against going on pumps with type one, they're going to change their mind. I still do think the biggest challenge is going to be in that adolescent population that the T1D exchange and David Panzier's funded project showed that big bump. I don't know how we're going to get that improved. Type two is completely different. And what I am so excited about in the next few years are the GLP-1 agonists and the GLP-1 GIP agonists really not only impacting diabetes, not only now impacting 
what we've learned with cardiovascular and renal outcomes, but actually taking a real bite out of obesity. You may have seen the step one in this week's New England Journal with the editorial. This is a game changer. So just like with insulin, the bottom line is the haves and the have nots. Who is going to have access for all these amazing drugs that science has come up with? And that to me is the big question. Well, gosh, there's not much left to say, David, after these two, you know, giants in the field. But I would just say, you know, Satish, you you mentioned that the acceptance of CGM by patients, and I look at it as patients love this thing from day one. It's really acceptance by healthcare professionals and the insurance companies that can reimburse for it. And I think, you know, you know, many years ago, we were saying type one CGM is the standard of care for type ones. And I do believe it's going to be huge in type in the type two space. I mean, I even think that using it for people with prediabetes on oral agents only is such an awesome behavior modification tool. And, and I think we've all seen patients change their therapy around, improve their diabetes control by looking at their blood sugars. And I do think that oral, you know, hybrid closed loop systems, when I see patients in clinic on these systems, I mean, it's hard to find a patient with an A1C above 7%. And pretty soon the university is going to kick me out and say, you're fired. We don't need you anymore. That's why I'm learning how to be a barista at Starbucks because, and I'm trying to talk David, the dinosaur into, into going on looping because I know he's using the Omnipod. Lastly, I'll say that in addition to the, all that data on high dose GLP ones, I do think that <laughs> that there was something good to come out of Steve Nissen's you know rave about rosy glitazone that SGLT2s and GLP ones and looking at the current algorithm that the ADA and ESD put together for prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular death, a hospitalization and death from heart failure. That's huge, and I think it's it's woken up our country to screen more for not only heart disease, but also kidney disease. Can I just add to this one single point, which is Earl made a very good point. The hybrid closed loop systems or the AID systems are going to help people with type 1 diabetes or insulin requiring patients. My main problem there is access. Who can afford these things? How much insurances are going to charge? And not only that, when you globally look at it, there are about 100 plus million people who require insulin for their diabetes management, about 30 to 40 million people with type 1, 70 to 100 million people with type 2. And I can assure you today, if you look at the data in the past 10 years, the number of pumpers hasn't grown. It's about one to one and a half million people globally. So not even 1% of the insulin requiring patients are on some sort of a pump therapy. As much as I would love to see this being used across, maybe in center like ours, it will be, but not out in the community where they have to shove out 20, 30, 40, 100 part of the payment and they just can't afford it. So access is going to be a real issue. Yeah. No, you bring, you bring up a great point. And, you know, in some of the podcasts I've recorded already and some that are coming, it's a, it's a common theme. You know, we have this great stuff. How do we get in the hands of patients so they use it? Yep. But, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about, now that you've talked about, you know, the, the greatness of sensors, we all know. I think Earl has a point. Yeah, I'm, I mean, just, just very quickly, Satish is right. We still have places in the world that do not have good access to insulin, let alone strips, let alone CGM. The U.S. was way up there with poor access with all of the insulin rationing before the pandemic. So Satish is right. We're talking about all these great things for the privileged few, 
But I want to point out another issue on the type 2 side, and that is access to the GLP-1s and the SGLT2 inhibitors. And the fundamental problem we have, at least where I live, and Satish and Steve, maybe it's different for you where you guys are, is that the payers don't see the cardiovascular and renal benefits, even though the studies are clear about that. I still have to say a patient has failed metformin, which by the way, I don't even know what that means failing metformin, for them to get semaglutide, dilaglutide, pick your flavor. And it's a fight. It's a fight for every single drug. And and the average physician is not going to do what we do. And we have the resources and infrastructure to do these fights. This is really the problem, despite how good the research and the, the new ADA guidelines are. Well, think about this. And, you know, I think somebody alluded to it. I can't remember who the new the drug that Lily's developing, trizipatide or whatever it's called. Yeah, And it looks, uh, you know, I've read the data. I'm sure you guys have read the data. It looks outstanding. And the question is, again, you know, you're right. How do we get it in the hands of patients? You know, there's so many moving parts to this whole dynamic, you know, the payers and the PBMs and God knows what else. So, you know, it. I think it's something that, you know, again, it's a common theme that I hear every interview that I do. Let's look at a different kind of thing that may tie into this and may not. Can each of you give me your viewpoint of digital diabetes, digital health, whatever you want to call it? Yeah. Do you see it as plus? Do you see it as a minus? Do you see it as maybe that, oh my God, my job's at stake? Although you guys are all, you know, wealthy and, you know, young and about to retire. So. (laughs) Okay. Let me start off with digital diabetes. There is no doubt The COVID pandemic has really taught us that telehealth is an important and integral part. For example, David, Steve, and Earl, I don't think 70% of my patients, I need to see them every three months. I could see them once a year, and maybe one other visit could be done telehealth. Thus, I think telehealth will be here to stay, but here is the key component to this. Will telehealth be reimbursed at the same level as it is reimbursed right now? We don't do patients' physical exam. Hospitals are not interested because they don't collect a penny for their facility charges. So are there going to be competing forces that might not allow us to continue with telehealth? So there are pluses and minuses of telehealth. Majority of the patients would love to continue in some way, shape, or form, on a limited basis, the telehealth. David, was that the question you asked? You talked about digital health. I I agree with you, Satish, on video visits and things like that. But David, I want to make sure, what was your question? When you say digital health, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, there's all of these approaches. You've got Lavargo doing their thing. You've got Vitra doing their thing. You've got OneDrop doing their thing. You've got LifeScan doing their thing. You've got all of these apps that are talking to either pens or meters or CGMs, and then you have what I call the algorithm-driven digital health, what I I commonly refer to as a Tyler. You know, you got an insulin pen talking to a CGM, talking to an app, which has an algorithm, which is supposed to recommend dosing. So I don't view digital health personally as just the interaction between the physician and the patient. I'm talking about Will digital health, as I see it, an algorithm-driven, perhaps human-supplemented, replace what the endo is doing? Earl, do you got any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, 
I think the potential is there, but you have to show me first. I know in the type one world, this is a huge focus of what the Helmsley Charitable Trust is doing. I actually have a patient who I really struggled with and have struggled with for many years. And then his daughter got diabetes. And he happens to be in this trial where they have somebody working with him and working with the CGM. And these are mid-levels. These are not endocrinologists. And he's doing better than he's ever done. That's an N of one. But I think, David, what you are really talking about are the masses of type twos who have this app on their phone, whether it's a Lavango-like situation. And there are so many of them out there And the data so far are not robust enough for me to say this is the way we should go. From a theoretical point of view and doing a population-based medicine type of algorithm, whether you're using CGMs and smart pens, and now we can integrate steps and calories burned and food and all of those things. And by the way, food is the hardest thing because nobody has shown me an app that really works great every time with food. That to me is the, the Achilles heel. But I think theoretically it's there. I'm just not sure we're there yet to make up. Uh, let me put it to you this way, David. Right now, if somebody came to me with a new app and asked me to invest money in it, I, I, I don't think I would yet, mostly because if I'm going to invest, I'm going to do it on the- there you, there you go. Smart move. Fighting Illini in the uh, March Madness. Yeah. I mean, David, I'll, I'll make this really quick. I think that anybody not doing well that gets- Frequent phone calls and support is going to do better. And that's that's the patient Earl was just talking about. I also agree that I have not seen any app make a significant difference in patients. Now, each of these companies have their studies that are funded by them, and they're just not well done. And I just think that you cannot motivate and get people under control with a phone app. I might be old-fashioned that way, but I have not seen it move the needle at all. And to that effect, these digital apps need to be standardized. Just imagine every pen, every CGM company comes out with their own app. It's not like an EKG that every Tom, Dick and Harry can read an EKG. If there are 20 different forms, in the end, nobody's going to use it. Can you imagine those primary cares out in the community who have no idea even to read a standard EKG? And now you give them 20 different platforms to interpret the values How can you ever imagine a patient learning about those? So it has to be standardized in some way, shape, or form. And that could be a Herculean task because most of the the companies don't want to talk to each other about their issue, what they are trying to develop. To Satish's point, to Satish's point, Satish, (laughs) Steve, and Earl can't read any KG either. So don't worry about Tom, Dick, and Harry. But I'm I'm speaking. There is some interesting work coming out of, the Israeli group looking at using their algorithm compared to what the doctors do. And everybody does everything differently. And everyone has different approaches to the way they deal with insulin, for example. But that doesn't necessarily mean the outcomes are going to differ. So it makes it even more complicated. Okay. So let's talk about kind of this dynamic that's developing because of, you know, we have an access issue, we have a technology issue, which really are in a way the same thing. You know, I agree with Earl, you know, that Hey, you know, there's there's a lot of us, you know, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate. I have the, you know, I use the Omnipod, I use the Dexam G6. I have access to all of this stuff. There's a lot of people who don't, but there's also this what I call gap between those of those patients who are engaged and the majority who are not. How do you see that developing? Because, you know, you there's so much out there now 
a lot of patients, rather than tuning in, are overwhelmed and tune out. How do you see that impacting the future? This is going to be a task for the companies to engage with the providers and our patient by educating them that there is a role to play. I'm hoping that each company doesn't come out with a separate platform and then the messages get mixed up. If you recall, rosigletazone, there was only one message they had. There is a new term they created, if all of you remember that, insulin resistance. That's all they focused on. They didn't focus on anything else. Same way, if we have a unified message, all companies could gather. I don't see that happening in the near future. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right, Satish. It's just like trying to get, all, in the olden days, all the meter companies to use the same software. It's not going to happen, unfortunately. But I, I'd say, David, the answer to your question is is one reason why these apps don't work is that, you know, I mean, this patients need to have their doctors, doctors need to have empathy to their patients and nothing replaces communication. And with our broken healthcare system and the, sh- the short amount of time that we have with patients, that part is missing. And David, I, as you know, and Earl and Satish know, adherence with type 2 medications is horrendous. And you can get one with lots of excess, the best high-dose semi-glutide, uh, and if you don't take it, it doesn't work. So that's the age-old question. How do you engage patients? And the way our healthcare system is set up it just doesn't work. And a, and a phone app is not going to do it. You know, I, I mean, my only comments are there are things that work, but we don't we haven't seen things that work long term that's robust. I, I'd love to see data from Steve's patients in San Diego who go to TCOYD every year, where they have it every year in San Diego. And those patients sort of get a boost every year by going to Steve's program. And it really, it really is a lot of fun. And people walk out of there smiling and they feel like they can go ahead and tackle it until the next TCOYD. I think there are certain things. Steve, you were one of the first to really experiment with group visits which is very different than a telemedicine visit, a group visit, which can be telemedicine or not. I mean, there are certain things we can do, but as a rule of thumb, the way the healthcare system is with the busy PCP getting 10 or 12 minutes with that patient and all of the issues to deal with just with the diabetes, let alone everything else, the, the system just doesn't work well enough for this to really show what it could potentially do. Well, let me interrupt and just add or, or you know, get your thoughts on this then. You know, social media is playing a huge role right now. I mean, you can't go on. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I follow a lot of groups on Facebook, you know, and you see these people posting like from Control IQ, for example, you know, these timing ranges, which are incredible. Yet you also have all this other what I would call less than reputable stuff. And obviously that's got to impact not only the patient, but you as a physician, because you got to answer all these stupid questions. So I guess my question here would be, if you had to net it out, realizing that there's no question social media isn't going away, how do we deal with it? You know, how do we make it a positive and not a negative? Misinformation is the biggest problem. I mean, there are patients who are questioning the validity of vaccinations right now, despite the science being available to some extent that shows they're efficacious. And there are times I'm ending up spending all of my visit with the patient on this stupid vaccination, forget about their time and range 
or <laughs> insulin dose adjustments is all gone down the tube. It's all about the COVID visit. So I think proper information and accurate information is the key. Would any of you say then that, okay, obviously Facebook is a very popular platform as is Instagram or Twitter. Are any of these platforms, are they educated enough to weed out what is bad or, no. or is it up to, quote unquote, the diabetes industry to, to, to establish standards? So let me, let me tackle that. I mean, Satish is right. But by the way, it's not just diabetes. It's just not healthcare. It's misinformation for everything on social media. And, what, and, and Satish is right. People get focused on whatever this misinformation is. And I don't know how to police that. I mean, you potentially could police it with industry. But even with that, it's, it's impossible because people come in with their own views who may not be even having anything to do with industry. The misinformation gets out there. And now it's like a uh, coming from the Bible. And it's this. And it is the hardest thing to deal with in a patient visit is the misinformation that they get. And sometimes it sticks there for years. I don't think there's any easy answer, David. It's a great question. And I think a lot of people are getting off of social media because it's just getting out of control. And I I personally am on it on a super minimal level as part of TCOID, but there are a lot of bullies out there. You're now doing rock concerts. I do not know how to spell Facebook or the Twitter. I don't have either of those accounts. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you can't even spill my name, Satish, so don't worry about it. Satish, you're on plenty of fish. I know you are. I'm not on any of them. Since, listen, since I know we all have a limited amount of time. It's over now. Now I'm going to make you really, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go on the record and take a stand about something. Okay? So I'm going to ask each of you to pick one thing, whether, and I want you to be specific. I don't want you to tell me it's a hybrid closed loop. I want you to say, I like this drug, I like this system, and this is going to make a real impact five years from today. For type 1 or type 2 diabetes? Yeah. Either one. You name it. Okay. And you can break it down, but you can break it down. So. For type 1, I think the CGM is the key. Now, if you're visioning it going forward, type 2, the first drug should be the GLP, especially the weekly GLP analogs that's in nutshell, is just one line answer for both of them. Steve? Wow, I've never seen you answer a question so briefly. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. It means he he has to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Then he's younger. (laughs) Okay, okay. So, all right, Steve, Earl, you know. I'll just make it. I'm going to go beyond what Satish said, but build on it. I do think that we need, if we ever developed a fully closed loop, artificial pancreas, I think that'll be huge. And that's going down the line, whether it's Ed Damiano's eyelid or something else, because I do think that it'll take, it'll take patients with very poor glycemic control and get them in a much better range. And I think that's the future. Now it's not a cure, but it's a, it's, it's a stepping stone to a cure, or I'm sorry, it's a bridge until a cure comes along. And maybe tablizumab might be something that really comes forward in type twos. I do think the dual agonist, you know, that Earl mentioned, zipatide is an impressive, shockingly good therapy that's going to make a huge difference. Yeah. And I will say on the type one side, I would like to say an immune modulator to prolong beta cell secretion, but I think we have a ways to go. That's what I want to say. 
And, and so then we get into the technology and we talk about better, more aggressive hybrid closed loops where everybody's at 85 or 90%. That would be nice to say. But what I'm actually going to say is everybody has access to whatever insulin they need or want. I think that to me is the biggest issue. Whether you want pulmonary inhaled insulin or Degladec, Traceba, right now people do whatever they can afford, what their insurance allows them. So that, that's on the type one side. On the type two side, it's very clear to me that the high dose GLP-1s or the GLP-1 GIP, this is potentially a game changer, especially once we get to primary outcome data looking at diabetes prevention. And I think from a population point of view, if we can afford it, if we're willing to invest in it, that to me is the most exciting five-year goal. You guys got a few more minutes? Yeah. I do. Okay, because uh, you know, you touched on an issue I, I definitely want to get to because I've, I've gone back and forth on this with a million people. So I'd like to get each of your opinion on the insulin market has commoditized. We all know that. And there isn't a lot of quote-unquote incentive for a Lilly, for a Novo to work on newer, better insulin. Yet everybody tells me that we need newer, better insulins if we're ever going to get to a truly closed-loop system. I'd like your guys' opinion on that in, under this perspective. A, do you think the insulins we have today are good enough to achieve the goal of a truly closed-loop system? Or is, is this the, the roadblock that's standing in the way that we don't have an insulin that works well enough? I think we have decent insulins that can achieve in a vast majority of the people a decent glucose control. The two new rapid-acting insulin, ultra-rapid-acting, quote-unquote, even though I did the studies on both, I'm not sure they add any other value. I mean, they might add five more minutes so that people, instead of injecting 30 minutes before, they may have to take the bolus 20, 25 minutes before. I'm not sure it adds a value for its cost barrier that people are going to see. Because all what the companies are doing is transferring their existing Humalog, Novolog patients into these newer long ultra-rapid acting insulin and having them after a year or two to pay all these enormous copays. So practically, it's not a viable, it's not a good solution, I think, economically for the patients. I, I think, David, that if we had a liquid form of a Freza, and you could, with a rapid on, rapid off, and you can put that into a hybrid closed loop, it would definitely work better. Now, saying that, I agree with Satish that uh, these newer ultra rapid acting injectable insulins, Lumgev and Fiasp, you know, they're, they're incremental benefit, but I'm not sure how great a clinical benefit it is. But I, I feel that if you're going to have a really tight closed loop system, more rapid on, rapid off that mimics a natural, you know, intraperitoneal injected secreted insulin in someone without diabetes is, is going to be helpful. Saying that, look at guys like Ed Damiano and the Islet, they put out some pretty impressive data using the current subcutaneously available insulins. Uh, you do, you know, it's like steering an ocean liner a little bit, but it still can be done. And I do think that I've seen people go on Islet I'm one of the investigators, as Earl is, and I think that if you take people who are not under super tight control with their current system, whether that's a tandem control IQ or looping, the other people that are having a harder time, they 
always do much better when you take the decisions away from them and you give it to a pretty sophisticated algorithm. But Steve, I want to add to that a little caveat. Yeah. I'm sorry, but uh, no, no, we'll come back to that. And the point is, you're looking at the three of you have type 1 diabetes. I love the three of you. But I'm looking at more a holistic approach, a population health. Look at half a billion people with the disease. 99% don't have access to these things, what we are talking about. If you're going to make an impact on the health outcomes from people with diabetes, we need to look at the population at large. Otherwise, we are never going to accomplish what we can do in a handful of patients in our clinic or your clinics. Yeah, I just say one thing, let Earl go in. You know, those billions are people with type 2 now. And you mentioned the cost of these hybrid closed loop systems. If you think about it, the algorithm's free. People are using pumps and CGMs for years and years. You're just adding in the algorithm. And so if you look at the folks in the United States, what, 30% are on insulin pumps. And I think the real unmet need is getting the rest of the one GM, whether you use a smart pen or pump or just file in syringe. But we can't hear the world of type one right away, but we might as well advance the technology so eventually we can. Earl? Okay, so I have a few points. So to Steve's guiding the ocean liner, whether it's the islet or whatever, my problem is I have too many people who are trying to uh, drive the Titanic. (laughs) And it's a huge problem. The, The issue to David, your first question is, do we need better insulins? The answer is, it depends on what level of glycemic control will you be happy with. And and I agree with Steve and Satish right now, we just have these incremental changes and we haven't really seen the study data to suggest that we're doing better. And to me, what the bar should be, can we keep somebody on a closed loop or hybrid closed loop? And are the blood sugars good enough for pregnancy? If pregnancy is the bar, we're not there. We, we, we just simply aren't there. The other huge part of this that we've only sort of touched on in this podcast, but I do want to point out is the three of us, really the four of us, we don't make the average healthcare provider or healthcare consumer, as Satish was talking about with the millions of people around the world with diabetes. And if we just focus on the US, industry is focused on people like us for a good reason, But the reality is, you know, Steve, this is your data with Jeremy, half of the type ones in your study was 38 of the type ones, they get their care from primary care, their outcomes are not as good, your study showed that, and I don't feel like we are doing enough to show these primary care providers, these non-specialists, it's not that they don't understand it, it's that they don't have the time, both are at play, because the system is such, they can't take the time because this is such a time-intensive disease state. And I don't think we've addressed that well enough. And that's where I think our research really needs to move in the next few years. Okay. So since we're going to wrap this up, I'm going to give you each your your, your three, whatever, however long it would take. If you had to deliver a message to industry, and I'm not talking about Wall Street or a patient, but you've all worked with industry and you're all seen, seasoned is my word now that I am uh, seasoned myself. So if you had to deliver one message, a clear message to industry, what would it be? What do you want from them? Start talking to each other and start thinking of patients. They say they're thinking about patients, but they're thinking of their stock price and what revenue they are making at the end of the day. That's all they care about. That'll be my message to them. 
So my suggestion is right now the business model is make the drug as expensive as you can get away with. And this is going to be a naive thought. And what happens at the end is only a few people have access to it based on contracting, PBMs, rebates, and so forth. And David, maybe you can explain to me what I'm missing. Why don't they make the drug so it is more affordable at the patient level? So instead of only having a few people get this great drug, that you have the masses have access to this great drug. It's a bad analogy, but we've been able to do that with the COVID vaccine, or at least when all is said and done. But we are not doing that in the world of these diabetes drugs that are saving lives. I appreciate the cost to develop a diabetes drug, but at the same time, the people who can have best access to it don't. And where I see this the most is with the obesity drugs. I can get that drug for the diabetes indication, but not for the obesity indication where we actually do have good benefit and it drives me nuts. Yeah. I mean, you guys really said it all. I think, you know, access is key. And I I see a lot of money wasted, David, on companies developing me too drugs when they could be actually doing, you know, going to the next higher level of technology and next development. But there seems to be a lot of waste and overlap in our area as well. Everyone's interested in making a profit. And I understand that you have to, but I, I love the concept of figuring out a financial plan where you can actually lower the price for the masses and still make the same kind of profit you would on a smaller group of people charging a higher amount of money for those folks that have insurance. So, you know, it's access for sure. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been fun. We're going to have to do this again. So no, no, thank, no, no. 